and welcome to a new podcast series focused on reproductive well-being. This podcast is a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive Health National Training Center, with funding from the Office of Population Affairs and the Office on Women's Health. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of OPA or HHS. In this series, we will explore the reproductive well-being framework, which strives to ensure that all people have the information, services, and support they need to have control over their bodies and to make their own decisions related to sexuality and reproduction throughout their lives. My name is Dr. Reagan McDonald-Bosley, and I'm the CEO of Power to Decide. I have over 20 years of experience in this field, including as a practicing OBGYN, with a dedication and commitment to reproductive health and equity. Today, we have with us Power to Decide's Chief of Staff, Dr. Jillian Seely. Jillian has a PhD in health science and deep experience leading policy and systems work in a variety of settings, including schools and communities, as well as expertise in the social determinants of health. She's worked at the local, regional, and national level, and has built scaling and sustainability strategies for these settings. In this episode, we're going to discuss reproductive well-being. Power to Decide has been working with more than 40 national, state, and local organizations to build a nationwide reproductive well-being movement. Today, we would like to tell you more about this impactful framework and how it can be utilized to ensure that people have access to the supports and services they need to determine if, when, and under what circumstances to have a child and to support a healthy start for the next generation. So let's dive in. Jillian, I'd love for you to start by just telling us about the reproductive well-being framework, how it was developed, who was involved in that process, and, and what did the process reveal? Thank you, Reagan, for having me on. I'm really excited uh, to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. So uh, reproductive well-being um, started in 2017. We were very grateful as an organization here at Power to Decide to receive funding to really look at sexual and reproductive health of individuals and what levers needed to be pulled to ensure that they had um, optimal uh, sexual and reproductive health. Um, and so we knew that we could not do this alone and so had to engage uh, national organizations. At the time, we didn't know how this work would transpire, right? We didn't know what the findings would reveal. We didn't know um, what documents we would create. And so at the outset, we called it an intentionality movement. And one of the reasons for that was that as an organization, we'd done um, some surveying, we'd heard anecdotally uh, from young people who um, did not want to become pregnant, um, wanted to be able to, you know, use and look at various methods of contraception, um, but then did not follow through on, um, you know, not wanting to become pregnant and using contraception. So their um, intention did not match their behavior for a variety of reasons, not of their own making. Um, you know, there were barriers to access, et cetera. And so we thought, um, you know, we'd love for folks to be intentional about their reproductive and sexual health. So we connected with a variety of organizations that spanned the spectrum, uh, whether that was, you know, public health organizations, um, whether that was governmental agencies, whether that was providers, healthcare networks. Um, because one of the things that we also knew at the outset, though, is that uh, the social determinants of health was at the root of um, understanding why sexual and reproductive health services um, were not being met and meeting people where they were. 
Um, so we pulled together, we, we reached out and pulled together over 40 organizations to help us build this intentionality movement. In that first meeting, um, as we brought together 40 national organizations, uh, one of the first things that we heard very early on and very clearly is that intentionality was not the word that should be used um, because there are a variety of reasons um, why intention, uh, depending on where you sit and what communities you're in, suggests that people have power as it relates to their sexual and reproductive health. And we know that that is not true um, because people lack access. There are many barriers um, to people fulfilling their sexual and reproductive health. And so the group decided very early on that we would need to change um, that word intentionality. Um, and in subsequent meetings, we tried to think about uh, what word could we use? What phrasing could we use that would be impactful around the work that we were wanting to do? Um, and, you know, in, in talking to the group and that group talking to their constituents and colleagues and people in communities and doing focus grouping, reproductive well-being was born. When we think about other frameworks of support, right, that sort of directly or indirectly relate to optimizing sexual and reproductive health, you know, there's like the reproductive health space, which is often where I've operated around sort of what happens in the clinic settings and in health centers, the provider-patient interaction, right? There's reproductive rights, which is about the policy and the laws that impact someone's ability to access care. And then reproductive justice, which is about all that and so much more, including movement building among people, especially people of color, um, to ensure that people have access to the services and to ensure that people can um, decide whether or not to have children and raise those children in positive environments. How does reproductive well-being differ from these frameworks? How is it situated uh, in reference to reproductive justice, reproductive health, and reproductive rights? So I think that's a really important question. I think one of the things that we knew very early on, um, one of the things that we thought to ourselves and we were very conscious about, is that we didn't want to co-opt um, work that had already been taking place um, as well as we didn't want to duplicate efforts. We really wanted to see reproductive well-being as being complementary to reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. And we knew that these, especially reproductive rights and reproductive justice, had paved the way for us to be able to do that work that we, had, that we were doing and that we continue to do. Um, and so for us, we actually see it at the, as the inter, at the intersection of all of these movements, right? And that we, um, look, I think we have a big tent. Um, we want to make sure that reproductive rights, justice, and health are walking alongside us as we build out this framework, not just for uh, communities, but for systems, because we want to make sure that systems are also developed so that they can support um, an individual's rights, uh, their justice, their health, uh, as it relates to reproductive well-being. So we saw, again, this as being complementary at the intersection, at the crossroads of the work that had already been taking place. Um, and we knew that reproductive well-being as we looked at what levers needed to be pulled, including included some of the levers that rights and justice were looking at, but also included um, policy. We wanted to make sure that, um, you know, that they were 
supportive policies as it related to um, reproductive well-being. We wanted to make sure that any work that we did um, was culturally sensitive and linguistically appropriate. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we had uh, a shared learning collaborative around this work. It does us no good if we do this in a vacuum and um, are not taking what we learn at the national level, um, translating it to the community level, level and, and really learning from those, um, what, we, what we're hearing and the work that we're doing. Um, and we feel that as we learn um, and as we move in this work, that we can add to the work that um, reproductive rights, justice, and health are doing. And so for us, um, again, we want to be complementary. Um, and in working on um, the reproductive well-being and the documents that we have created and, you know, the, the um, communities that we're working in, um, you know, we have invited uh, many of the organizations that represent rights, justice and health to sit at the table with us as we um, create and develop this movement. I love that. I love that. So I'd love to hear more about sort of the application of reproductive well-being, right? Like, how do we apply this reproductive well-being framework? And what does this mindset bring to the field? Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, what we discovered that was that there were seven levers um, that we agreed on collectively that needed to be pulled. Um, and it helped us develop a national blueprint for action. And what this national blueprint for action framework um, did was that it was a commitment from organizations to use the framework that we had developed to institutionalize reproductive well-being at the national level within their organizations. Uh, and some of the things that we identified was, as I mentioned before, um, you know, policies that were supportive of reproductive and sexual health. And so we had organizations within our collective who specifically focused on policy. Um, and so we're you know, going to be tasked with dealing with, you know, what policies might, you know, might they be looking at and advocating for as it related to sexual and reproductive health. Um, one of the other things that we realized, as I mentioned, is that we needed a shared learning collaborative in communities. And so Power to Decide worked not just with the 40 organization steering committee, but also developed an expert panel of people who were on the ground doing this work who could tell us and inform us um, on developing a, a community framework for how this work could be undertaken. Um, so, you know, that was the second thing that we, we realized was needed. Um, the third thing that we realized and that we're still working on is developing a measurement framework for reproductive well-being. How do you measure um, that reproductive well-being has been met in a community, has been met at the national level, um, that physicians are using or providers are using the tenants. Uh, and so we pulled together um, experts in the field to really talk about and think about um, what a reproductive well-being framework might look like. Uh, and then one of the big pieces is that we wanted to have a reproductive well-being narrative. Uh, how do we ensure whether it's, um, you know, power to decide um, reproductive health, rights or justice organizations that we're all speaking from the same hymn book, right? Just to, to just, um, you know, just to give a phrase um, that when we talk about reproductive well-being, that we're all talking 
about similar or the same thing. Because if we as organizations are not clear on what reproductive well-being is and the tenets of reproductive well-being, we can't expect the individuals who we hope to impact to understand that what that was. So, um, you know, these were four of the applications that, you know, very concrete things that we came up with um, that needed to, to happen. Um, and I will tell you from a power to decide standpoint, I think we have done a good job of institutionalizing reproductive well-being so much so that it's at the underpinning of all the work that we do. Love that. And we're constantly talking about inculcating reproductive well-being principles in all of our work. Um, and what I love about the Shared Learning Collaborative is it's expanding that, right? It's expanding that to community projects, people on the ground doing this work um, in their own spaces. Um, and they're sharing information with one another and helping one another address challenges to reproductive well-being in their own communities. I'd love if you would share maybe just a little bit about one of the projects and what you're excited about that they're working on. We're currently working with um, eight communities who are all very diverse communities across the country. And I, I think one of the things that we have been um, extremely um, happy about, and, and they've really um, showed us the work that they're doing. As we know, um, you know, during the pandemic, things have been, um, to say the least, um, challenging for many of those communities as they're dealing with the pandemic. Um, and some of the um, individuals who are part of the Shared Learning Collaborative are physicians. So they're dealing on the front lines. Um, but nonetheless, this has not diminished their their commitment um, to looking at uh, reproductive well-being in all the spaces and in all the things that they're touching. Uh, and one example of this was one of our communities um, came to us and said, look, um, we are definitely focused on COVID, um, but we understand that reproductive well-being is very important. Um, and so how can we marry the two of these things? Um, and one of our communities came up with um, understanding and realizing that there are many myths, misconceptions, I like to call them myth conceptions, um, that are out there around um, COVID, um, the vaccine for, for COVID, um, and fertility, and talked about, you know, how can we dispel these myths? And they actually had uh, a session. They had a fair, a street fair, uh, which included a session on um, reproductive well-being and dispelling some of the myths, primarily in African-American communities around COVID vaccines and fertility. And so this is just one example of communities using the knowledge that they're gaining through the Shared Learning Collaborative, but using that for practical um, application um, in communities. And, you know, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised that when we started this work in 2017, um, nobody had really heard about reproductive well-being. People were like, what is it? I don't know what it is. It sounds, I don't know, it sounds strange. And now more and more in national spaces, we're hearing the word reproductive well-being being used much more. And so I think as we, I think, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is exactly what we wanted to happen, right? That this becomes a narrative. You know, you have to have a shift, a cultural shift, right? When you're looking at doing movement building work, it needs to be a paradigm shift. And so, you know, we're seeing paradigm shifts, albeit small. Um, you know, when you look at other movements, whether it's Me Too or other movements, like it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. 
Um, but I will say, you know, with our community work, with our national work, and hopefully with our measurement work, um, we will definitely see some impacts um, over time. I love that. I mean, it just sort of putting the the paradigm shift involved with the reproductive well-being movement, right, and centering the power um, and centering the responsibility on the system itself to ensure that the system is designed so that people have access to the supports and services that they need. It's incumbent on us to do that work, right? Rather than shaming and blaming people um, for their reproductive decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a really powerful framework. I'm so grateful to you and all of the colleagues who participated in creating reproductive well-being. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about this reproductive well-being framework that you'd like to share? Only thing I will say is that, um, you know, it's not a stop and start type of framework. Like this framework, will con- we'll constantly be building on this framework, right? We constantly want to, um, you know, talk to communities and have communities tell us, like, this is what we're seeing, helping us to really shape the narrative for various audiences. I think, you know, in the past, we assumed that one size fits all. And as we know, from uh, public health and you and I know, Reagan, that one size does not fit all. It's not cookie cutter. And so we are wanting to um, be humble, right? When we're, as we're learning and working with organizations and individuals and systems about how we can make this better. I think the only other thing I will say is that, you know, out of reproductive well-being and talking about, you know, the narrative and how we talk about it, in addition to the definition that we had, we also came up with, you know, four pillars. Um, and I know we'll be talking about this in subsequent um, conversations, but we came up with four pillars around reproductive well-being. We want to make sure that, you know, people are seen and heard, that they're respected um, for the decisions uh, entrusted by providers as they make reproductive well-being uh, decisions. Um, we want to make sure that they have autonomy, that people have the freedom and safety to experience the sexual experience sexuality as they want to experience it. Um, that people are in control, that people receive access to all the information because we want to make sure that people get accurate and resonant information and then be able to make decisions for themselves and their families. And then finally, to your point, we want to make sure that people have a system of support, right? Um, it does us no good to talk about reproductive well-being if the systems are not there to support people in their choices. And so that's what I would, you know, want to, um, you know, make sure is included in this. Um, And again, you know, it is not a start and stop. And I think power to decide welcomes even additional organizations that were not part of the initial 40 organization uh, steering committee who led this work. We continue have an open tent for anyone who, you know, sees the work that we're doing, uh, has a passion for this work, uh, understands that it is impactful. We welcome you to sit at the table as we continue to do to, to do this work. Well, thank you, Jillian. I'm so grateful to work with you and to be a part of this organization that's working to disseminate and grow the re- reproductive well-being movement. Um, As Jillian stated, in our next podcast, we'll be diving into the four pillars that are essential to reproductive well-being. So we hope that you will join us for that podcast as well. Thank you so much, Jillian, for this informative discussion. It was so great to have you here to teach us about reproductive well-being. To follow the work of Jillian, please follow at tweet for a cause on Twitter. That's T-W-T-4, the number four, a cause. You can follow me at at Dr. Reagan on Twitter, and you can stay connected with Power to Decide 
by following at Power to Decide on all platforms. This podcast was produced as a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive Health National Training Center. You can learn more at rhntc.org.